Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined again by Terry Teachout for yet another discussion in our long-running series on noir and noir-adjacent films. Today we're taking a bigger departure than usual. We're going to Hitchcock again. Our first conversation after all was on Vertigo and now we're going to the sequel the movie Hitchcock made right after, North by Northwest. We are going to be talking about the perfection of comedy, but also what in the movie is not simply light or transient and why it is still such an impressive picture to watch 60 years later. Sir, thank you for joining me again. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Always a pleasure to chat with you about movies. I was delighted to know that you too love the movie. It's only our second Hitchcock conversation, but what a way to go. Well, of course, North by Northwest is not a film noir. It plays like a comedy, and I think that most people receive it as a comic thriller. And I certainly did when I first saw the film years and years ago, and that was basically how I felt about it. And I loved it on those terms. I thought and still think that it's one of Hitchcock's supreme achievements in film. But the older I get, the more I begin to feel that there is, in fact, beneath the great fun of this film, serious thinking, serious feeling going on about relations with women, about the place of the United States government in the world. I mean, I don't want to overestimate the seriousness of North by Northwest. It is ultimately a brilliant romantic comedy thriller. But I'm not sure that we would still be coming back to it in the way that we do over and over again if there weren't more to it than that. Yes, even for Hitchcock, it is a rare case of a gleaming surface that is almost entirely bewitching. It's hard to find another one of his movies that beat for beat, scene for scene, entrances you quite as much and moves you along as it moves. But as you pointed out, there are all these other things in the stories. Why isn't it just a thriller? Well, it's because this man falls in love with a woman in a haphazard way we don't see coming through the first act. And why is it that at crucial points in the movie, in the middle of an action, they start talking about men and women, marriage and divorce, and things of that character? Surely these are not merely throwaway lines. Perhaps to begin at the beginning of the romantic part of the comedy romantic thriller, as you put it, we have a man who's got issues with his mother. (laughs) (laughs) Does he ever? A man who has been married at least once unsuccessfully is my impression um whose most successful and i put that in scare quotes relationship with a woman is his relationship with his charmingly hectoring and oppressive mother who is played by jesse royce landis who uh, was actually younger than cary grant was if i remember correctly when they filmed this movie which says something about cary grant's permanent youthfulness But he's a man who has women problems, who suddenly finds himself caught up in a double helix of uncertainty and confusion. He is, for reasons that become clear in the course of the film, mistaken for somebody else, a spy. And he becomes involved romantically with a woman who is not what she seems to be either. And all of a sudden, the two strands of this double helix get pulled very, very tight and we're off and running. Yeah, to begin with, you don't see a lot coming. There are just these sorts of notes like romances in the air because of his mommy issues. She treats him like a little boy. She always laughs at him. She doesn't trust him even when he says he's actually in danger. 
Cary Grant had the talent for playing boyish into his late middle age even, and so this works wonderfully. And of course it's not his first pairing with Jesse Royce Landis in a Hitchcock movie. She played his all-too-wise, all-too-human prospective mother-in-law in To Catch a Thief. Yet another story where Cary Grant is mistaken for a criminal, chased around, he's got to clear himself of a crime, and he can't do it without the help of a lovely blonde young woman who is complicit in his adventure, but also... It's almost like a dress rehearsal for North by Northwest, yes. It's a lovely similarity. Well, Hitchcock was drawn to this kind of thematic material. His movies always portray very problematic relationships between men and women. The major movies do. Something typically goes wrong, there's profound misunderstanding at work, and that misunderstanding very often brings us to the very edge of tragedy. And yet, we don't think of his films as being tragic, even though they contain this kind of content. It is because, uh, like so many great masters of film and drama, it was his custom to play serious moments for laughs. So that when the real seriousness comes, it lands all the more potently because you've had so much laughter. North by Northwest is a film that, as I said at the beginning, essentially presents as a comedy. And so this aspect of the film is not quite so obvious when you first look at it, but it is very definitely there. I'll tell you somebody who threw us off the scent, and that's Ernie Lehman, who wrote the screenplay for this movie. He was reminiscing about how it came to pass. And he said, one day I said to Hitchcock, I want to do a Hitchcock picture to end all Hitchcock pictures. That's the only kind of picture I want to do, Hitch. And by that, I meant a movie movie with glamour, wit, excitement, movement, big scenes, a large canvas, innocent bystander caught up in great daring do in the Hitchcock manner. Well, that sounds just wonderful, absolutely glorious, and that is what we get with North by Northwest. What it doesn't sound like is anything like a serious statement about human relations or the nature of male-female attraction. It sounds like a great big barrel of fun. For years, when I watched this movie, that's how I received it. There's a really illuminating essay by Charles Thomas Samuels in 1970. He wrote about North by Northwest. He was a qualified admirer of Hitchcock, and he spoke admiringly of the film's contentless virtuosity. And I bought that for a very long time, that North by Northwest was, in a sense, a forerunner of the great thrill rides of movies in the 70s and 80s, of the post-Spielberg films. That This is sort of where they came from, this tremendous loop-the-loop that starts out with mistaken identity and ends up on the face of Mount Rushmore. It wasn't until I grew older that I came to feel that the central relationship in the film between Cary Grant and Ava Marie Saint is not such a meet-cute romantic comedy relationship at all. It is, in fact, something quite serious, something serious enough that he's prepared to put his life at risk for it more than one time, something that he himself, as a character in the film, takes very seriously, as does she. And we are also told in this film that Cary Grant is put at risk deliberately by the CIA for a reason its significance is not made clear to us. Quite deliberately, this is what Hitchcock called a MacGuffin, a premise for action that isn't gone into in any kind of detail and isn't all that important. There's a great meeting at the CIA where everything is explained about a third of the way into the film. And we come away with the impression that they are rather light-mindedly putting him at risk of his life in order to advance their own agenda. That is a very cool point of view to be presenting in the Eisenhower era in a popular Hollywood film. 
There's a point later on in the film when Cary Grant actually says, maybe we should be losing some Cold Wars if this is the price we have to pay for it. Now, that sounds a lot more like Jean Le Carré than it does Neil Simon. These are not just little bits that Hitchcock has thrown in to make North by Northwest seem more serious than it is. He means them. This is not a nihilistic film. It is a film that within its comic thriller context really comes down quite seriously about the things that it is portraying. And as we said a moment ago, if it didn't, I'm not sure that it would have lasted as long as it has. I mean, pure comedy is great fun. I mean, the screwball comedies are not profound statements about uh, human nature. They're frivolous farces of the uh, charm and delight. But there's just more to North by Northwest than that, including villains who are really quite villainous, not in a snidely whiplash way, but in a way that you buy as villainous. James Mason is the primary villain in this film, uh, one of the great screen actors of the 20th century and someone who plays the bad guy with startling and alarming elegance. And Martin Landau, that great character actor who plays a quite obviously homosexual confederate of James Mason, who is frighteningly evil, wicked. So this is a Hitchcock movie. And even though it's a comedy, it's a scary comedy. We're supposed to be scared, I think. Yeah, I think that to a large extent, it's the combination of thriller and comedy that makes people not take it seriously, since the serious things aren't said seriously. They're not said at serious moments. And who takes comedy seriously? Right. So kind of reminds me of Howard Hawks, you know, another... Yes, another... exactly. A filmmaker who was quite serious in his portrayal of relationships between men and women, but always played them for comedy and played the male personality for comedy, which throws you off the scent. Yeah, I was thinking about that myself because Hawks made enough Cary Grant movies that some are dramas and some are comedies. And in the comedies, he's always led around by women who make so much fun of him, whether it's Kathy Hepburn in Bringing a Baby, or I think it's Anne Sheridan in I Was a Male War Bride. Yes. And of course, then there's Monkey Business, where both Ginger Rogers and, in a way, Marilyn Monroe do it. He had immense fun with Cary Grant, always made fun of him, up to and including putting him in drag. But then there are the dramas, like Only Angels Had Wings, just mm, a year yes. after bringing up Baby. All of a sudden, he's a Hemingway-esque manly man, tough, dark, cold. And both of these features are brought together in North by Northwest. You see him in his anger, speaking violently, making a woman cry. And at the same time, you see him in his comic moods, in his baffled moods, as life and other characters play with him, and he's struggling to catch up. He had so much charm that he could afford to appear the fool without losing his attractiveness. And Hitchcock somehow puts both these sides of the Howard Hawks Cary Grant together. He never lets us forget people keep recognizing him. You have a familiar face. Of course, he's Cary Grant, of course. But at the same time, he is this character who has to transform into another character. The plot itself ultimately is literally true. If people did not take this mild-mannered, somewhat silly, but very successful, very eligible bachelor who works on Madison Avenue and a madman, an advertising exec, if he didn't have to transform into the spy people mistake him for, he would never become a serious man. If he didn't do the things he's accused of doing, admittedly after he's accused, then he wouldn't be interesting to us as a character, and he wouldn't be the man that Eva Marie Saint needs, even though she doesn't entirely realize it at first. And that is what brings North by Northwest into the area of film noir. 
the fact that there is a character transformation as the result of harrowing experience. Yes, it's a comedy, so we don't necessarily get it that way. But when Cary Grant starts out this film, he's a rather worthless man. I mean, he's an advertising executive. You know, nobody cares about him but the women he's paying alimony to. Uh, Even his mother dismisses him as serious. (laughs) And by the end of this film, he has saved his life, saved the life of Ava Marie Saint, saved the government secrets, has vanquished evil, and has been transformed as a man to somebody who, as you say, is worthy of the prize of this woman. That is definitely adjacent to the noir mechanism that we've talked about in these podcasts. So it's not quite so crazy for us to be talking about North by Northwest in this context. You know, isn't it funny that James Stewart wanted desperately to play that part? He had (laughs) just filmed Vertigo. He loved Hitchcock, knew how good they were together. And he wanted to be Roger O. Thornhill. Hitchcock, of course, loved Stewart, but he also knew that he wasn't right for the part. And so he stalled until Stewart had to go to work on Bell, Book, and Candle, which is what made it possible for him to hire Cary Grant without having any hurt feelings on either side of the procedure. Can you imagine Jimmy Stewart in this movie? I mean, he would have done well. He was Jimmy Stewart, the great film actor of America in the 20th century. He would have made a good fist at it, but it wouldn't have been right. Cary Grant is right. Every inch of him is right in this film. Even when he's dodging a crop duster, piloted by gun-toting commie spies, you know he's going to come out smelling like a dry-cleaned Brooks Brothers suit. Because he's Cary Grant, because we know him. And that's how the star system works. It works because we come to know the actors and actresses whom we admire as personalities. We bring expectations of them to the table. And wise filmmaker knows that we do that and casts either according to type or very subtly against type and makes the most of what they bring to the table. North by Northwest is a prime example of that. It is the ultimate Alfred Hitchcock movie in one sense, but it is also the ultimate Cary Grant movie in another sense. Yeah. In other movies, for example, in his previous Hitchcock movie, To Catch a Thief, Cary Grant starts out Cary Grant luxurious, sophisticated, suave. You can't take your eyes off of him. But here he has to become Cary Grant. At first he just looks handsome, but he's kind of dull and he's kind of foolish. And you're interested in his hijinks and mishaps, but you want him to become Cary Grant. And gradually he does. In a way it's an achievement. He has to live up to our expectations. He has to truly become a star. And I think that points partly to why we admire him so much. What man doesn't want to face danger, save a beautiful woman, save his country? That's exactly what every young man wants. And I dare say all of us, even past our 20s or so, still live with this dream. And Cary Grant, of course, fulfills that better than perhaps anybody else. Because he has charm, he has some touch of menace, but he's not essentially a hard man. He's not essentially tough. There are certain noir characteristics that he lacks. The closest he got to noir was also Hitchcock, of course. Whether you think of Suspicion that way or Notorious, they are both close. But in those movies, he's more passive. He's not on screen all that much. He doesn't do that much of the action. Whereas here, he has to hold our sympathies and to make us believe his transformation. Every other minute, he's on screen so much of the time, you wonder how can he do this? How can he keep up the pressure? How can he deliver and surprise at the same time? And he can even do it without talking, which brings us to the great set piece at the center of North by Northwest, the crop duster scene. 
uh, the one that's always shown, and rightly so, in the film schools, in which next to nothing is said, just a little bit of setup dialogue to explain what Cary Grant is doing standing by a dusty road in the middle of nowhere, Illinois, with a cornfield across the street, and he's waiting for a bus, and this fellow says to him, you hear a plane going over, and the fellow says, that's funny. It's a crop duster dusting where there ain't no crops. And then he catches the bus. Cary Grant is alone. And all hell breaks loose as the crop duster goes after him. Not a word is said. I haven't clocked it, but that scene, you know, I'm sure it must be three, four minutes long, playing without any dialogue at all. Just the sound of this terrifying machine that is trying to do him in. And no music Remember that North by Northwest is scored by Hitchcock's great collaborator, the greatest of all film music composers, Bernard Herrmann. And the music in this film is enormously important to its total effect, starting with the main title cue, that bizarre, threatening fandango, and, uh, you know, just every... There's a lot of music in North by Northwest, and it's all striking. But there's no music in the crop duster scene until the moment when the crop duster crashes into the truck and explodes, and then, boom, the music goes off, too. Whoever's decision that was whether it was Hitchcock's or Herman's, and I suspect it was one that they both came up with simultaneously since Herman was known for understanding when not to have music. It emphasizes the power of music to set a mood. If you withhold it and withhold it and withhold it, where any other film composer, any other director would have larded that scene with underscoring, and then you don't bring it in until the plane crashes and blows up, boom. You can't have a more dramatic demonstration of what music can do for a film than this astonishing moment. Yeah, that's very well put because this is the transformational moment in the movie. Up till now, Cary Grant has been playing defense, playing catch-up, as I said, trying to save his life from people who keep threatening him, from authorities who mistakenly chase after him. And this is the lowest of the low. He's about to get killed in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But he survives, and from this moment he decides to take the initiative. This is what it takes to get this man to get moving, to start thinking ahead and to act, not simply to react. And this is where the suspense of the movie achieves this potency, as you mentioned it, by dropping the music for a moment. This is a movie that starts, as you pointed out, with bright, beautiful music that's slightly strange. It's a bit too erratic. It is a bit unprepared. You don't know why should this start quite with such verve. But at its central point, all of that stops. And all of the drama depends on motion of the camera. You got the great Bob Burks who shot so many of Hitchcock's movies from the late 40s onward. And then Cary Grant's acting who has to sell you on long, long minutes of nothing happening in the middle of nowhere. And then slowly this thing building up with that lonely remark as you put it. You notice something strange here. The suspense is beginning to turn into confusion, perplexity and then fear. Death by gas, death by car, death by explosion, all of this stuff concentrated as a payoff and as a signal of what's been going on with this character. He has been harried, he has been harassed, and only now does he fully realize in what danger he is, that there's nobody who's going to help him, and that he's going to have to be a man, he's going to have to do something about it. To put this very briefly, Three times in the movie, the police appears. The first time he's arrested and it's a big misunderstanding, he thinks, and he tries to get the police to help him out, get him out of this mess he's in, but they won't, they can't. 
he's behind events, he's not smart enough, so that's that. Then in Chicago, right after he does this death-defying act in the middle of nowhere, he actually calls the police himself to have him arrested as a way to save his own life. Now he's beginning to take action. And the third time the police appear, which is Mount Rushmore, now it's a full setup. He's in on the joke, far from being behind the times, he's part of the conspiracy here, part of the intrigue. He has fully asserted his powers of planning and acting, and he's no longer afraid of death. He mimics his own death. After having been threatened with real death so many times in the movie already, at Mount Rushmore he fakes his own death. So that's the transformation of his character with respect to fear of death and danger, and it is all of it prepared by that silent, impatient waiting, and then the extraordinary scene that has been imitated and applauded so much that we assume is going to last for a long, long time. You know, you said something a moment ago that I want to underline. It never occurred to me until just this moment, but of course, North by Northwest is a film about the making of a man. Because Cary Grant really isn't one at the beginning. He's henpecked by his mother, by his ex-wives. He's in what he acknowledges is the most meaningless of all jobs. He works for an advertising agency. In the 50s, that would have been a symbol of existential meaninglessness that anybody in the audience would have gotten. And then, just out of chance, the coin turns. He's mistaken for a non-existent spy. And he has two choices. He can die or he can grow up. And he grows up. Every time his life is put at risk, it, it typically is done in a way that makes us laugh. The scene in which he's forced to get drunk by the bad guys because they want him to drive off a cliff. The uh, auction room scene in Chicago, which is played as a farce, except that it's not. Because you have James Mason and Martin Landau at their slickest and most sinister making clear to him that when he leaves this room, they're going to kill him. And yet we're laughing at it, too. That's Hitchcock's genius. Like Hawks' genius, it is a genius of recognizing that comedy is a way of saying very serious things about human existence, human nature. I wonder how well Hitchcock understood what he was doing. There's another famous thing. Ernie Lehman quoted Hitchcock. He said that when they were midway through location shooting in New York, Hitchcock said to him, Ernie, do you realize what we're doing in this picture? The audience is like a great organ that you and I are playing. At one moment, we play this note on them, and we get this reaction. And then we play that chord, and they react that way. And someday, we won't even have to make a movie. There'll be electrodes implanted in their brains, and we'll just press different buttons, and they'll go ooh and ah, and we'll frighten them and make them laugh. Won't that be wonderful? Now, I don't know whether Ernie Lehman maybe uh, over-egged the pudding when he was recalling that quote, but if it, <laughs> But it if was Hitchcock, given to that, like all good yeah, storytellers. Very possibly. But if Hitchcock said anything like that, that doesn't jibe with the movies he made. Not really. I mean, some of the really light ones, maybe. But, uh, you know, it's just credible enough that you can buy it. And as I say, I bought it when I was young and thought that this was really what Alfred Hitchcock thought he was up to, what he thought he was doing. And it wasn't. I've had the chance to think about that quote as we were preparing for this, and I think that at one level that is perfectly true, since everybody knows about Hitchcock, that you just put yourself in his hands. You're just there for the ride, and it is a carousel ride, it is great thrills, laughs, whatever it is that you might not even know in advance that you need, he will provide expertly. And that does seem to show this command, this extraordinary practical psychology. How will the audience take this? 
how do you have to massage the event how do you have to massage the conversation the everything music lighting camera motion all of it to do it just right so that you don't lose your audience along the way and that does require indeed something like the art of the organ player you have to figure out everything you're going to do execute many different things at once just right continue from this to that just right but of course that doesn't include any necessity to talk about a guy's lost wives and why they thought he was dull in an essential sense it doesn't include why this woman should be talking about the fact that it's precisely men like him that drove her to her dangerous sort of self-sacrificial work for the government because she's in a way given up on America. She would right. fly off and risk her life because she's been so disappointed by modern living. These things wouldn't be necessary simply to get people to laugh or to cry or to what have you. Indeed, on a first viewing, you notice almost none of these things. It is this other Hitchcock that you begin to notice when you don't just glide on the surface of the movie, but you stare at it because now and then a thing attracts your attention. Back then in the 50s, the assumption was that you would see a movie once and never again, that a movie was not a text, something to be returned to and explored and that you would come to understand more completely. And North by Northwest, if you only see it once, that is the level on which you will almost certainly experience it, especially if you don't know a lot about Hitchcock. Yes, um, exactly. Right, you're going to overlook things like when Ava Marie Saint's character says she became a spy because it was the first time anyone asked me to do anything worthwhile. That's not a line from a comedy. That's serious stuff. And uh, we haven't said much about Ava Marie Saint, who is a truly wonderful artist. And maybe this is the moment to do that. Because, yes, she is the Hitchcock blonde that we have come to know so well and will continue to know well in later films. She is beautiful. She is cool. She is seductive. But she's a real person, too. A person who has known tremendous disappointment and who is seeking to change and redeem her own life, as you say, by becoming a spy. She clearly thinks that there's something worthwhile in what she's doing, worthwhile enough to risk her life for it. And that's a complicated thing to project in a part. And uh, this very young woman, I forget how old uh, Eve Kendall says that she is, but it's in her early 20s. If memory yes. serves, she is a very young woman who is gone on a train to seduce Cary Grant. And it's a very suave and sophisticated and old cowardly kind of situation. But it's more than that. These people are engaged in a serious, life-changing transaction. Maybe they know it, maybe they don't, but they find it out very quickly. And the hurt that she projects when she realizes that he thinks basically she's just a whore, that is what he thinks, she really puts that across. That is a performance absolutely worthy of the stupendous acting that we're getting from Cary Grant and James Mason, let us not forget. Mason is a great film actor who is playing a supporting role in North by Northwest with everything that he had at his disposal. And he's doing it very lightly and very casually. And because of that, you don't see the art working. You don't see that he really is a man who would be perfectly happy to kill you if it suited his purpose. Just because he's suave, just because he's urbane, doesn't mean he's not dead serious. Yeah, he has all the grace of a cobra. You do not yeah. know when he will strike. He has this cool attitude throughout most of the movie, as we suggested before. He constantly appraises Cary Grant's performance as an actor. He judges situation as though he were outside of them, just giving directions. He's a kind of evil twin of Hitchcock. He has his henchmen plot things out, and then those next scenes are carried out with him off stage. 
says, you know, kill him in this way there, then kill him in that way there. And he just leaves stage and you see what the confidence this man has that he knows that he has the power to act without acting. His words become realities, which again is very much what a storyteller would be doing. This very British man has an evil version of Hitchcock himself. And of course, Mason was, I'm not sure I can think offhand of a villain better than him. He had decades of preparation by that point, long before he had come to Hollywood, and he could do varieties. There's uh, 50 ways to kill your lover, as the song <laughs> says. And at the very end of the film, when he realizes that he's been fooled, that uh, Martin Landau was right. He shouldn't have trusted Eve Kendall. He shouldn't have trusted his own uh, romantic irresistibility. And his face just screws up into a rictus of horror and anger. And he, and he slaps Landau, I think. Yeah, um, punches him down. Yeah, punches him down. And uh, boy, that, again, once again, that's a real actor playing a real part in a real situation. It just happens to be located in this film that is masquerading as a pure comedy. Um, yeah, and just the restraint it takes to build this man up only at the end to drop that mask, so to speak. At some level, this man is collapsing because even he, in a way, believed in love or in the fact that he himself is lovable, that he's, yes. the role he's playing is irresistible. And when he finds himself betrayed for the first time, the mastermind is outsmarted. He realizes what uh, somehow it's catastrophic. It demolishes him inside and he loses his cool and becomes violent. What a payoff and, and what a build up to it. It's his acting that determines half of what uh, Eva Marie Saint does. She has to be in certain ways immobile, restrained, cool, precisely because you don't mess with a cobra. You have to be on your lookout, you have to play it just right and that mostly means understatement. And to convey her suffering and her fear and the daring to do what she does because at crucial moments clearly she's making choices to endanger her life. They work so well together, it's remarkable. The more he becomes histrionic, the more restrained she becomes. They're one part of a love triangle and they work very, very well. Then of course there's the other part of the love triangle without quite realizing it. Wit and flirtation leads to something else on this train where she meets Cary Grant. You can see how much more serious she is than he is. He's distracted, he doesn't know quite what he's doing. He's counting his blessings that anybody will help him out as she does on the train. And then, of course, he's a beautiful woman and he's the kind of man who, even if he is threatened by death, is not blind to erotic charms, let's say. And she has them plenty. That was the story Eva Marie Saint told, that the only direction Hitchcock gave her was to say, keep your voice low, stop moving your hands and look directly at him at all times. She is a seducer, she is an object of mystery, and she is fearless. And so he is constantly drawn to her, and for the most part she plays him around her fingers. It's uh, again a masterpiece in understated power. You see what is going on through her and what she is acting out without her having to be erratic. Cary Grant is way more erratic at times, as in the rear projection uh, scene where he's supposedly drunk and driving almost off the cliffs. He's going back to his famous 1944, his last screwball, I guess, for Frank Capra. Arsenic and old lace. The Halloween movie. As a young man, Cary Grant did do these kinds of roles where he was overacting wildly to great comic effect. And then, of course, there are all the action scenes where he has to become scared or dangerous. He plays in all these different registries, whereas she keeps in a few 
and whenever he moves away from her, things get wild. As he moves back to her, he can get back to normality. And she's a color magnet. She is. She's a color being used by a master cinematic painter and used exactly right. And so is Martin Landau. Let's say a few words about that performance. Prior to North by Northwest, when somebody who was obviously meant to be read as homosexual is played in a Hollywood film, it's always for laughs, it's always for absurdity, it's always, you know, Edward Everett Horton or, or Grady Sutton or one of the, or Franklin Pangborn, characters like this. Now, suddenly, from out of nowhere, we get a different kind of cliché now we read him as a cliche now but back then here was james mason's assistant who was clearly not a bit in love with his master but who is also a person of great power and energy and potency in his own right he is somebody who loathes ava marie saint because james mason loves her and is prepared to expose her as a double agent and uh, he's evil in a very different kind of powerful way. I mean, you really buy him as a real person. I wonder how many homosexual characters had been portrayed with that special kind of energy in Hollywood films before North by Northwest. I'm quite surprised that they got away with it, to be honest with you. I mean, there's never a moment when it's said that Martin Landau's character is a homosexual. I mean, the farthest they go is when he talks about his feminine intuition. It's the only giveaway. But other than that, you know, he's not obviously camping it. He's just playing a man whom we are expected to interpret as being gay. Another very interesting and daring thing that Hitchcock has tucked into this film. Now, of course, we're going to look at it and say, oh, yeah, yeah, what a cliche. You know, he hates the woman because he really loves the man, all of that. But it was different back in the 50s. This is the Eisenhower era. It's surprising how modern this film feels in all sorts of ways. One of the ones that I like best, because it's one of Hitchcock's most fabulous pieces of special effects magic, is Van Damme's house, his mountaintop house, which is quite clearly intended to be read as a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Yes. Well, the house doesn't exist. Uh, it was created out of special effects, matte paintings, concocted in the studio. I mean, the first time that I, I got to know Frank Lloyd Wright's work, I briefly took for granted that there must have been a real life model for that house. It must have existed. No, it's just pieces of it were built in the studio. How interesting then that this ultimate sophisticated villain should have a mid-century modern mountaintop retreat where he goes to cook up his evil schemes and do the dirty and that's part of the visual freshness of the film. Just like when you're in New York in the opening location scenes, you're seeing places, some of which still exist, some of which don't, but they still seem like the kind of place you'd see in New York. Grand Central Station, I'm not sure how much of that was shot on location and how much of it was studio built. But when I was a boy, that was my first sight of Grand Central Station was North by Northwest. Um, <laughs> in fact, the whole film for me, I saw it on television when I was young. It became part of my idea of what New York was like. Sophisticated, elegant New York. The Plaza Hotel, Grand Central Station. I mean, I just thought, and people like Cary Grant. And we still are romantic notions of New York, even now at this present state of its disrepair and decay. We still like to think that New York is like the New York that we see in our dreams, the New York of North by Northwest. Yeah, it is uh, magnificent, and a lot of it, the production design is indeed flawless. 
Speaking of New York, they rebuilt, as it were, the Oak Room on sound stages, and nobody can tell the difference. No. It, you know, they had to do the same sorts of matte paintings and sets and composite shots for the United Nations building, and then actually all the way for Mount Rushmore, because, of course, nobody would give them permission to shoot on the statues of presidents. It would be Right, and they snuck a camera into the United Nations building to shoot a couple of long shots in there. Obviously, you couldn't film in the UN building. Somebody's going to get killed there. This is just not done. Yep. Uh, Hitchcock could be sloppy about special effects in his black and white films, in his Academy Ratio films of the earlier days. But in this film, this widescreen color film, except for some of the rear projection in the drunk scene, this is a film where the special effects really work. You really buy them. You really, if you don't know, you could imagine that maybe it really was filmed on Mount Rushmore. Yeah, uh, indeed. Both the color and the variety of sets makes this very difficult, but they put more care in this than any other Hitchcock movie I can think of to get this exactly right. There's nothing to surprise in an unpleasant way. There's no moment where you think, wait a minute. That again testifies to how intent he was on getting these things right, and they do their work. If the movie didn't start in a place like New York, it would be very hard to pull off this combination of intrigue and glamour, and then at the same time to turn this guy into a man whom we could all admire and love, like whom we are at least a little, and more in our admiration. So it's quite an achievement, and his own westward motion is very believable. He's not just a New Yorker, he's also all-American in a certain way. It was a couple of summers ago that Fathom Events showed North by Northwest in large screen theaters. I think this may have been the first time that I ever saw the film on a large screen. If not, it's certainly the first time I saw it in years. And I was wondering, how will it hold up visually? I mean, how good will it look? Well, not only did it look fabulously good, but I can't begin to tell you how many details in this film that for years have just gone unnoticed when I've watched in my living room. Uh, they just seem to explode off the large screen. In a way, the most exciting one was the beginning of the crop duster scene. Because if you remember, the way it's framed is that Cary Grant and the stranger across the road are at the extreme left and right sides of the screen. Well, on a television, that's, I don't know, what, two feet, maybe? Yeah, well, when, when I saw this on a large screen in a theater, it looked like the road that separated them was as wide as a canyon. And I was just floored. And I realized for the first time, this is what this movie is supposed to look like. It's supposed to be seen on a large screen, and it's supposed to be seen in the company of an audience. When I saw it, I think it was a matinee showing in Connecticut, and it was a pretty good crowd. And it was clearly a crowd of people, most of whom didn't know the film. And I knew that because of the audience reaction. They were laughing, and they were laughing when we were supposed to be laughing. They were laughing at the funny lines. And then when they were supposed to be dead silent and, and awestruck what was going on, they were dead quiet. What a joy it was to watch this wonderful film on a large screen in the middle of a responsive audience. We are losing that experience. We're losing it fast. 
Increasingly, the assumption is that we will watch films alone on a handheld device or in our living rooms with maybe one other person present. That's not what they were made for. They were made as collective, immediate experiences to be witnessed in the all-enveloping environment of a large, darkened room on a big, wide screen. And as great as North by Northwest is, and I've shown it to many people for the first time on a television, They've people of all ages, they've all fallen for it. It's just about an irresistible movie. But the way to see it is to see it in a theater in the middle of a crowd. And I hate to think that you and I may live into a time when basically people don't see this movie that way anymore. It really troubles me. Yeah, uh, we have this saving grace that indeed young people still fall in love with this movie for all the changes in society. People who have never seen it, who don't particularly like Hitchcock, are nevertheless drawn to it. But indeed, there is this other side. Listening to you talk, I was thinking about how would I put this aspect of it. And I would say that what it means to see this sort of movie on a big screen with a big audience there is you get to see how American it is. And That's everybody lovely. just comes together. That is a necessary thing. It is more than just a story. It is this guy screaming at Leo G. Carroll about the Cold War, him struggling with modern womanhood. This is the late 50s already. Things aren't the way they used to be and he's not very good at dealing with the new situation. And we see that for this young woman, it's not a pleasant world either. And there's all this great American Western adventure and all of these things have got to come together. And how could you do that without the sort of audience that just comes together in watching the story and recognize that somehow it's a big deal? Talk about North by Northwest as being an American movie. It's also a travelogue, you know. It is a movie that starts with a man catching a cab in New York, and without knowing it, you have jumped on the roller coaster. And you're going to end up on Mount Rushmore, that most quintessentially American of destinations, and you're going to go to all sorts of interesting places in between and see interesting things. And you're going to do much of it on a train. This is something else about the film that was important to me when I was young. I was fascinated by trains when I was a boy growing up in the early 60s. Passenger trains seemed to me the ultimate in romanticism. And that was partly because I saw this movie on television when I was a boy. Obviously, it's very romantic to go into the dining car and meet Abram Marie Saint, you know. But <laughs> there's more to it than that. I mean, there's something very special about train travel that is now essentially lost I once took a train from New York to Chicago, a sleeper car, to write a piece for the Wall Street Journal. But really, I did it because it was the realization of a childhood dream. I wanted to know what it was like. There was a dining car and I had, I mean, I didn't have the big room. I had a roomette, but you know, I wanted to know, would there be any of the romanticism left? And strangely enough, there was. And for those who are now really too young to understand that experience, believe me, it's embodied in this film. The idea of long distance train travel as a profoundly romantic way of experiencing what America is like, what it looks like seen from out of the window of a moving train. This film, among all the many wonderful gifts that it gives you, it gives you the gift of knowing what that was like with dining cars where you could get a lovely, beautifully served meal and you could watch it while looking out the window. And it was a different world. It was a different country. And I'm not about to tell you that everything about it was better than the America that we have now. But that was. Yeah. That definitely was. 
I wonder, is this the last great train movie? There was so much of train in comedies, in tragedies, all sorts of things in Hollywood up to the 50s, but I'm not sure I can think of one that quite compares afterwards now that you mentioned Not a it. great one. I mean, there were a couple of comedies that tried to recapture the spirit of North by Northwest uh, in the 70s and 80s, but, you know, they were meta-comedies, films about North by Northwest rather than films about train travel. You know, why would anybody want to make a movie about a train now? I mean, I actually took a sleeper car from New York down to Florida a couple of years ago. My wife, because of her health, was grounded, couldn't travel by air. And so we thought we'd give this a try. I'll draw the veil over the experience other than to say that it wasn't what we had hoped that it would be. And it wasn't something that we've ever done again. It wasn't Uh, a Palm Beach story. I'm afraid not. Uh, it was more, more, like, more, more like the narrow margin, I guess. Uh, oh. But definitely definitely not like North by Northwest. So I, this movie's a time capsule of different parts of America in the 50s. Train travel, relations between men and women, the experience of seeing a widescreen movie with an audience that is like Hitchcock's fantasy, going ooh and ah every time he hits a new electrode. This was what movies were like in that great time when they were a collective experience, something that you went to pretty much every week, something that you shared, something that you talked about. And here's one area where we have definite superiority over the past, where you never saw them again. If you saw North by Northwest in the theater in 1959, you would not have had a chance to see it again until it played on television. I would guess in the mid-60s. That was the first time that it made uh, Saturday Night at the Movies or whatever it was. And then not again until the VCR became accessible to people. I do remember that when I first bought a VCR, North by Northwest was one of the very first films that I bought, along with Rules of the Game and and other more elevated works of cinematic art. But who is to say that North by Northwest, which is at bottom a fundamentally entertaining film, who is to say that it is less serious because of that? What it is, in the broadest sense of this complex word, is a comedy. It is a comedy about human nature, and it tells us really interesting things about our natures through the medium of comedy. And there is nothing about comedy that is inherently less serious than tragedy. As Howard Hawks used to say, the only difference between comedy and tragedy is the point of view. Yes, indeed. And we don't usually think of Hitchcock as a director of comedy, although he did make one screwball comedy, which is quite lovely. Yes, uh, it is. What, Mr. Of, and Mrs. Smith, right? Exactly, the Robert Montgomery. Oh, Carol Lombard. <laughs> exactly, Carol Lombard, the Queen of Screwball. Yeah. And of course, in both uh, To Catch a Thief and to a lesser extent in Rear Window, there are quite comic scenes, but North by Northwest is still a surprise for its mastery of comedy. On a second viewing, you start doing double takes, you know, was that really there? How did I not see it the first time around? And on repeated viewings, I've gradually become convinced that it summarizes in many ways Hitchcock's career. I already mentioned To Catch a Thief, but there are of course so many other movies that it calls back to, starting with the 39 steps to strangers meeting on a train, a man running from the law, trying to get the help of a woman, and she refuses him. The Lady Vanishes. Exactly. Most lovely of train films, and one in which the special effects are absolutely inept. (laughs) Utterly inept. He was most glad to get to Hollywood where they had enough money to do these things right, I have no doubt. Yes, indeed. Hard to find somebody who appreciates professionals quite like him. 
You notice the affection with which we're talking about this film. I mean, Vertigo is a very great cinematic masterpiece, but it is not a film about which one is typically moved to speak with affection because it's not that kind of movie. It's a movie about the dark night of the soul. North by Northwest is a serious movie that makes you smile when you're talking about it. And you say, oh, remember this bit? Remember that bit? Oh, this perfect line, you know? I mean, you just, you immediately go back to all the marvelous things about this movie and you come away feeling, oh, I think it's about time I saw that one again, which is, of course, exactly what I'm feeling right now as we wind (laughs) up our conversation about this film. Usually when we talk about movies, I rescreen them before we do. I didn't have the opportunity to do that with North by Northwest because I was traveling. And uh, now I'm sitting here thinking, well, golly, I've got to watch that one again. I probably watch it every year, year and a half. It doesn't get old. It doesn't even get slightly old. Yeah, it's easy to love and maybe easier still to become grateful for the more you become familiar with it. And just screening it for my wife and thinking through things in preparation for this conversation, I had never taken fully seriously to what extent it's about getting these two people to get married at the end. This almost never happens in a Hitchcock movie for obvious reasons, but they do get married. It has made me appreciate it and Eva Marie Saint in a new way. I am uh, at the age where I'm far more aware of her vulnerability as a woman and uh, the things she does not say, but that you begin to glean from the things she says and from her acting. And indeed, hidden there in the beautiful, breathless comedy, all these touches of humanity, all these characters that are so understandable once you begin to look at them that it makes sense that they would do such and such a thing, that it fits their character. The action is there to bring out all there is in them, but without showing off. Well, it's every, there to be discovered. Every great classical comedy ends with a marriage. That is how they're supposed to end. The world is recreated within marriage. So maybe, maybe we could say that North by Northwest is Alfred Hitchcock's closest approach to Shakespearean comedy. Yes, that is very much true. There are, of course, disguises, changes of identities, misunderstood dangers, and the trouble of people trying to figure out how to make their way in the world. That's what it is to have a movie about becoming a man, about becoming a woman. That is to say, doing it together in relation to one another. And that is a fine portrayal of love. It is not insistent, but it is graceful. Much laughter, much seriousness. There are two kinds of people. The ones who think that Vertigo is Hitchcock's greatest film and the ones who think that North by Northwest is Hitchcock's greatest film. I lean barely to the latter kind. Indeed. Again, it's not something we would hear often about Hitchcock, but the slight preference for comedy, for the laughable That does fit his character. He was a great prankster at the lowest level, but he was also at the highest level so subtle with what is hidden in his comedies. That's what makes them such wonders. Yes. I don't find it at all difficult to think, as I said before, that there's so much about his past movies that he put back into this. At least he was, of course, very concerned with these things. I think he'd be glad to know that there are so many other people sharing his sense of humor. I think so, too. So to all of you out there, if you haven't seen it, watch it immediately. If you know it well, watch it again. Certainly what I'm going to do. (laughs) Me too. Terry, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for a lovely conversation. As always. uh, Let's try and find something that's anywhere near as delightful to talk about next. I think that would be a good idea. All the best, meanwhile. And you as well. (laughs) 